in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we're going to look at a company that has been around for a really long time, very influential. Uh, so long, in fact, that we are probably going to do this in three parts. Yep. yep. Uh, it's a- going to be three-parter. Yes. Uh, AT&T, the American Telegraph and Telephone Company. Yep. Uh, so AT&T has a very long history, and it first starts off with a couple of earlier companies. Now, this is not something that's... You know, unusual. We've had other discussions about other companies that, you know, you have to start with like a, like, a seed company, a yeah, parent, like General, of. General Electric. You know, mm-hmm. you'd have to go back way before General Electric to really talk about the company. So in this case, we have to talk about a man, a man who uh, has been credited officially and through other sources as the inventor of the telephone. Although, as we all know, when it comes to inventions, it's a lot. Tri- it's very tricky to narrow it down to a single person. It, it takes a research society to make a technology. And it turns out that there are a lot of people who are working on things all at the same time. And sometimes it's just the person who gets the patent, the patent in first. first in the case of Alexander Graham Bell. Uh, not that he didn't work very hard and make oh, great contributions. It's just that there were other people doing the same sort of stuff. Right. Right. So, uh, so in February, on February 17th, 1876, that yep. is when he filed this first patent. Yep. To uh, a way to electronically transmit speech by, quote, causing electrical undulations similar in form to the vibrations of the air accompanying the said vocal or other sounds substantially as set forth, end quote. Now, uh, it's interesting. He had already written the patent out earlier in January of that year. But there was a peculiar sort of um, legal loophole that he had to leap through in order for him to get this patent recognized in not just the United States, but also the United Kingdom. See, the UK had a, a rule that stated if you wanted to patent something in the UK, it could not first have been patented anywhere else. Right. So Graham Bell writes up this patent. He wants to get it patented. He's ready to submit it, except that he first has to get it over to the UK. And uh Guys, I don't know if you're familiar with this. In 1876, there were very few options on how to get from, say, the United States to England that didn't involve a really long journey. Right. It was basically swimming a horse right across that ocean. Um, <laughs> yep. You just hitch a team of horses <laughs> to a boat and say, giddy up. Uh, um, we, we didn't really research that part, so we might be a little inaccurate. Make sure you tweet us and let us know. <laughs> Uh, but no, no. I mean, you know, because, say, telecommunications were not a thing at this point. Because he hadn't patented it yet. Right. Uh, so it was it was taken a while. Yeah. And so. so as it turned out, that very same day, another electrician um, began the filing process. I don't yes. think actually filed. And what he what he did. We're talking about uh, Elisha Gray. Right. And Elisha Gray or, or we'll just call him Gray, because, first of all, I assume it's Elisha. I did not look up the pronunciation of his first name. But uh, Mr. Gray had submitted a preliminary application for or a similar apparatus. It was also called a caveat. That was the technical name for the preliminary application. He submitted a caveat for consideration for a patent the very same day that Graham Bell posted his, filed his patent, or technically Bell's lawyer filed the patent. Right, here in the United States we're yeah. talking about. Uh, yes, exactly. So Gray applied for a patent with a very similar idea, and the story goes, and I don't know the truth of this, and in fact, I have proposed to Lauren, not 
romantically, I mean an episode title, I proposed to her that we actually cover the con, the, the topic of Alexander Graham Bell and Versus. Elisha Gray because the story about who got that patent is really interesting and I think could merit its own episode. Absolutely. Uh, at any rate, uh, the story is that Bell's lawyer got a look at Gray's application, which included a uh, an element that was not in Bell's work. But then when the patent was filed, there was a little scrawl in the margin that covered the same idea. Oh, wow. So the story mm. is that Bell's lawyer, or perhaps Bell himself, it all depends upon the account you read, lifted an idea directly from Gray's work in order to uh, essentially beat him to Complete the punch. Complete this patent, yeah. right. So Bell's patent application goes in ahead of Gray's, and so Bell is for, at, at least initially awarded the patent, although it was not uncontested. There was actually quite a, a uh, vigorous battle in the legal system yeah, about this Yeah, that was gone for a few years. Yep. And uh, so moving ahead... On in that same year, March 10th, 1876. Now, remember, he's already filed the patent, but it was only on March 10th, 1876 that we had the famous uh, message from Alexander Graham Bell to his assistant, Thomas Watson. Mr. Watson being in another room uh, in the same building. Yeah. And, and he heard it over this device. Mm-hmm. What would what would become the telephone? And uh, the message, of course, was Mr. Watson, come here. I want you. And it turns out that, uh, according to the story, Alexander Graham Bell had accidentally spilled some acid and needed Thomas Watson to come over and help him clean it up before it did any uh, damage to the the surroundings. <laughs> so uh, not only was March 10th, 1876, the first phone call, it was the first emergency phone call. Hey. So, yeah, um, uh, that's a, a fun little little side note about this. And we are leading up to <laughs> the company, but you have to d- lay this groundwork. Uh, yeah. And, and I, I find all of this pretty fascinating overall. So. Yep. so on October 8th of that year, 1876, they had the first two way telephone call between Watson and Bell. Now, before it was a one way thing, you, you could have a, a transmitter and receiver, essentially. Now there was one on either side. You could actually have this communication. And this is where Bell introduced his idea of what the perfect telephone salutation was. Hoy hoy. Hoy hoy? Yeah. Which is what Mr. Burns says when he picks up the phone on, on The Simpsons. Ahoy hoy. That's delightful. Yeah. He, he, uh, <laughs> Alexander Graham Bell and everyone involved in phone companies hated the word hello. They did. Uh, and we've got some notes about yeah. that in just a little bit. There was, there was a very serious and an intense contention about mm, this. Mm, yeah. It was pretty the, wonderful. It was important with a capital I. Uh, but so in 1877, um, Bell was getting financial backing from the fathers of two of his students at Boston University, Thomas Sanders and um, Gardner Hubbard, mm-hmm. and wound up forming the Bell Telephone Company. Right. In fact, at first he tried to sell the telephone patents to a rival company called Western Union. You may have heard of that company. At yes. the time, it was the largest corporation in the world. And he offered to sell it to them for the princely sum of $100,000. And Western Union told him to take a long walk off a short pier. Yeah, they didn't at that particular point in time understand what this whole telephone thing was about. They were like, that's a toy. We don't get it. Right. No, thanks. If you wanted to send a message to someone, why would you go through all this bother when you could just telegraph it to them? We've got perfectly good telegraph lines and swimming horses. Why yeah, do you need exactly. anything else? So, so they, they poo-pooed the idea, and that's when Bell decided to go the other route and form this company. 
And with that financial backing that Lauren talked about, the Bell Telephone Company came into being. Um, and uh, at first, it was a pretty modest affair. Uh, in the early days, there were 778 telephones in existence, period. And the company had a grand total of one employee. <laughs> and that one employee was Thomas Watson, the former assistant to Alexander Graham Bell. And he was uh, he was paid the salary of $3 per day and also had one-tenth interest in the company, which, as it turns out, would probably be worth a little bit more than his salary. Yes. <laughs> so Bell goes ahead with his company. Uh, meanwhile, Gray, who had done some work for Western Union and had founded a company called Western Electric that was acquired by Western Union, began to compete against Bell. And uh, it got pretty nasty. Bell started to look into how he wanted to – well, really the company was looking into how they wanted to form the business. And they took a cue off the Morse company, Telegraph Company, and went with a franchise model, the idea being that uh, they would they would license out technology and telephones and things of that nature to companies that wanted to oversee the administrative uh, efforts of of handling this kind of local regionalized phone system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Bell would end up getting a the company Bell would end up getting a, a portion of that revenue mm-hmm. uh, in return for the fact that they're licensing the technology to this other company. Oh, right, right. Because until Bell's patents would expire, the company was the exclusive manufacturer and provider of telephones. Um, those those patents would expire in 1894, right. and that was a date that everyone in Bell was very, uh, very anxious about. Yeah, they were cognizant of it. They were anxious about it. Uh, there were other companies that did attempt to spring up despite this, um, this legal, uh, monopoly that mm-hmm. the Bell system had because of the patents. Uh, but we'll talk about that in a second. Before we get too far into this, because there's a lot to talk about, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. You've probably tried Hulu.com. Now with Hulu Plus, you can watch your favorite shows anytime, anywhere. Hulu Plus lets you watch thousands of hit TV shows and a selection of acclaimed movies on your television or on the go with your smartphone or tablet. And it all streams in HD for the best viewing experience. With Hulu Plus, you can watch your favorite current TV shows like Saturday Night Live, Community, and Family Guy. And you can also check out exclusive content, including Hulu originals like The Awesomes, starring SNL Seth Meyers, and Moon Boy, starring Chris O'Dowd from Bridesmaids. Hulu Plus also offers a great selection of acclaimed films. For only $7.99 a month, you can stream as many TV shows and movies as you want, wherever you want. Right now, you can try Hulu Plus for free for two weeks when you go to HuluPlus.com forward slash tech. That's a special offer for our listeners. Make sure you use HuluPlus.com forward slash tech so you get the extended free trial and they know that we sent you. Go to HuluPlus.com forward slash tech now. So there are a ton of TV shows and movies that you can see on Hulu Plus. One of them is Bob's Burgers, which is... A favorite of mine. I really enjoy the show. H. John Benjamin plays the lead role of Bob, and uh, it's it's certainly one of those dysfunctional family shows with lots of absurd characters and events. Uh, you just you just got to go see it. So go check that out. Okay, so we're now up to 1878. Now, in 1878, that's when we saw the first uh, regional telephone company actually launched. Not This was one operated by Bell Telephone. Uh, right. It was a franchise called New Haven District Telephone Company. Yep. And uh, in New Haven, Connecticut. 
And uh, Bell and Western Union began to uh, compete even more viciously. They were both launching franchises across the United States. Western Union began to use leverage by saying that they would not install any telegraph lines in any locations that were using Bell systems. So any region that relied heavily upon telegraph services wouldn't do business with Bell because they were afraid that if they did, they would never have any improvements or repair or maintenance of the telegraph systems or even operation of the telegraph system. So it was kind of, you know, holding Bell systems hostage. Yeah. Thing. You, you don't, you know, if you don't, uh, you don't get to play in this game because I own this game. Um, now, Western Union's telephones were based on the work of two inventors, one of them, Elisha Gray, and the other, Thomas Edison. Ah. Yeah. So some big names here. And on September 12th, 1878, that's when uh, Bell Telephone Company sued Western Union, which is a big story because Bell had a, a small fortune at his disposal. Western Union was the largest corporation in the world at that time, at worth more than $41 million, and had the backing of a certain powerful family in the United States, the Vanderbilts. Right. And uh, so it was a big deal that Bell would go up against this corporate giant. And that same year, uh, Gardner Hubbard, one of those fi- financiers who backed the Bell system in the very early days, hired on a man named Theodore Newton Vale to act as general manager slash president of Bell Telephone. Uh, right. Vale had previously worked for the U.S. Postal Service, and and he was very key in orchestrating this legal battle. Yeah. It's also interesting because uh, Vale will play another important role a bit further down the line. Vale had kind of a on-again, off-again relationship with uh, Bell Telephone, not necessarily all by choice. No, no, but but he did help shape the company. Oh, um, and, absolutely. And even as early as this, he had this vision of building a national long-distance telephone network work um right and doing it before bell's patents ran out right so which was hugely ambitious yeah incredibly ambitious a little too ambitious it may turn out to be yes uh in 1880 alexander graham bell decided to resign from the bell telephone board of directors um and the next year 1881 thomas watson would also resign so at this point the two inventors who gave the company the very basic invention that it was all centered around had left uh, the board of directors at that time, I believe, was putting a lot of pressure on they, they didn't really see the immediate monetary purpose of this whole nationwide network thing. Mm. And so they were they were really getting down people's throats about like, we kind of want to make money. We kind of put some money in. We kind of want a little yeah, bit back. Right. And this kind of digging your heels in. Yeah, sort of this is a whole lot of us giving you money and not a whole lot of us getting anything back. Right. Yeah, there were there were many years when this company was operating in debt uh, because they were setting this stuff up. Um, also, interesting little side note, Thomas Watson had a second career after his work with uh, telephone systems. Yeah. He would begin a career as a shipbuilder. Huh. He built ships. Well, good for him. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I just thought it was neat. Uh, so 1882... This is about when Western Union and Bell Systems uh, settle uh, this lawsuit. That's this ongoing dispute that had been uh, pretty much taking up all their time over the last couple of years. Um, because the, the patent infringement lawsuits were something that was just nasty on all parts. Well, in that settlement, Western Union ended up selling its telephone network to Bell. So that was a network that was, um, what, there was like... It spanned about 55 cities. That's That's significant. So 55 more cities go to Bell Systems. Bell, in return, promised Western Union 20% of its telephone rental revenue. 
So Bell Telephone also acquired from Western Union the company Western Electric. That was the one that was founded by Elisha Gray. And that became AT&T's manufacturing division. So uh, here's just a little uh, information about how the phone system used to work in the United States. It used to be that you would go to a store to get a phone and you leased it. You didn't own that phone. So you actually, that phone remained the property of the parent company, which at this time is Bell Systems and shortly will become AT&T. And so you would pay a, a leasing fee. And in turn, the company that you got it from was likely not directly AT&T. It was probably some regional office that also was leasing that same phone from AT&T. So AT&T, also, certainly at this point, it was Bell Systems, right, not Bell AT&T. Systems. So. But yeah, so Bell Systems <laughs> but, leases right. out a phone to a regional office. The regional office leases the phone out to the customer. So you didn't, you never actually owned that phone, which I think some people might find a little unusual today because they think, well, I bought this piece of electronic. I mean, you turn off the service, fine. I understand that, but that's my phone. Um, yeah. Not, not back then. Not back then. Nope. You were just renting it, really. So... Uh, Western Union gets out of the way, so Bell System effectively becomes a monopoly. And according to researchers, in terms of a telephone network yeah, capacity, yeah, they're, they're pretty much the. There are other competing telephone networks, but, but they're all they're all technically illegal at this time because this is Bell still when the patent exactly. Uh, so according to researcher John Brooks, Bell Telephone would uh, have uh, level more than six hundred patent infringement lawsuits against other companies over the course of a decade. And they won every single one of oh them. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Wow. Because anytime a company would come up, like there were companies that were trying to create telephone systems in rural areas that Bell just had not reached. And so they wanted to give people the benefit of this technology. Bell did not have either the ability or interest to go into that market. So they would go ahead and do it themselves. And then Bell would sue them because they're like, you can't do that. We have the, the exclusivity rights to this technology. Um, and, you know, and there's like, we're going to get there. Just give us time. Meanwhile, everyone's like, but I wanted to call my buddy. I, <laughs> there's no nothing to call them on other than sticking my head out the window and shouting, hey, Jeb. And so uh, I don't know why his name is Jeb. Short for Jebediah. Sure. 1885. <laughs> uh, that is when AT&T is officially formed as a subsidiary of uh, Bell. Yeah. And this is the the formal implementation of Vale's vision of creating a long distance network. That's the main purpose of AT&T. Right. So AT&T is all about building out a long distance network so that people can call each other across states and across countries. Uh, right. By the end of 1885, uh, the company would establish the very first long distance connection between New York and Philadelphia. It was capable of hand- handling a huge one call at a time. Yeah. One call capacity. So I can just imagine the circuits being busy over and over and thinking they need to just wrap this up. It, those people in Philly are chatterboxes. Uh, yeah, so that was the, but it was really more of a proof of concept, obviously, at that point, not necessarily something that was going to be terribly practical. We'll talk in a little bit about how expensive these phone calls were, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. It got a little dear. Um, so that same year, 1885, was when the state of Indiana passed a law restricting the price of telephone rental fees. So remember, I was saying you rent your telephone. Uh, both the regional offices do it and then the customers do it. But because Bell was the only game in town, they could pretty much dictate what those rental prices were going to be. Uh, this this lawsuit said, well, you need to cut back on those costs. 
So um, Bell's response, the company's response was saying, well, you know, we have to have these prices because the service is expensive to uh, to build out, to administer, to maintain. We cannot operate at a lower cost. Uh, we, if we were to lower these mo- this amount of money, uh, we would not make a profit. We would lose money on the deal. We can't do it. So your phones are off. And they shut off the phones in Indiana. Yeah. No more calls. Out Indiana. Of Indiana. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. And, um, it would be a couple of years before wow. they would come. It was, it was 1888 when service was restored. That is so much power for one, yeah. for one corporation to have. Yeah. Some people said that AT&T's statement was that this was an example of, quote, the futility of public action in ignorance, end quote. Saying that, you know, you guys were all upset and you told us that we had to do this thing, but you didn't understand that we were doing it because that's financially what we have to do. Other people said, no, AT&T held the state hostage <laughs> by saying you don't get phone calls until you play ball. Which so, I think is a fair. <laughs> that's 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 pretty awful. So yeah. Like, yeah. Well, <laughs> with, without actually looking at the financial books sure. and knowing that I the guess, company did operate in debt for a while. That's I can't fair. Be entirely it's, it's sure. hard. It's hard to say. Although, you know, at the time they were positing themselves as sort of a public service. Almost. That's right. It's akin to something like the post office, which would become much more their their message in a few years. Right. Sure. Uh, so 1887, that was the first year that Theodore Vale resigned as president. Yep. Uh, uh, that that was uh, directly, I think, in due to his frustration with the board, like yeah. I was saying earlier. And there was a dispute with some Boston financial backers as well. And all of that kind of fed into Vale's uh, uh Resignation. He just decided that that was not where he needed to be. So, uh, that he, he leaves. Don't worry. His part of the story is not over yet. Uh, without him, meanwhile, in 1889, the Bell system would adopt the first official Bell logo. Yeah. What did it look like? A Bell. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. All right. Uh, 1892. That was when the first long distance connection was established between New York and Chicago. And this was the real display of long distance. You know, New York to Philadelphia was impressive. New York to Chicago was a much greater distance. So this was uh, uh, marked by a ceremonial phone call. Mm-hmm. Graham uh, Bell would make that one as well. Yep. Alexander Graham Bell's on the call. Uh, I did not see who he was calling. Maybe it was just, you know, prank calls. Maybe he was making prank calls to Chicago and ordering pizza and then saying our pizza is better than your pizza. I can only hope. I would really hope so. I mean, you, you think prank call pizza, it fits. Uh, so the, the, after all, the very first call on a mobile phone was a prank call. Right. But <laughs> the capacity of this line was just like the one from Philadelphia. It Single can only call. Handle, yep. Yep. One at a time. And it cost $9 for the first five minutes, yep. which you, you did the math on uh, used, the inflation. Yeah, I used an, the inflation calculator. Now, normally I would use uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics calculator, which factors in the consumer price index. But that only goes back to 1913. So I used the inflation calculator. I honestly don't know where they pull their their figures from. from. So but based upon the inflation calculator, that nine dollars would translate into sixty dollars today. So sixty dollars for five minutes of uh, of a phone call. So if you think your cell phone bill is high. Yeah, that's you know, talk about how I'm almost out of minutes. Well, those minutes are precious. Look how much they cost in, back in the, the 18. 18- 80s. Uh, so 1894, that was when those patents that we were talking about expired. Yeah. And, uh, the day it happened, the, the columns at Bell system trembled and there was a great wailing 
Over the, over the next 10 years, 6,000 independent telephone companies would open across the United States. Now, these were legal at this point because mm-hmm. the patents no longer gained uh, exclusivity rights to Bell Systems. So you had all these companies that suddenly could operate legally within the United States and offer a competing um, product or service, rather. There are some problems here. So let's say, Lauren, that you and I both live in the same city back in 1894. And it's a small city that Bell System really hasn't gotten into. But there's this regional company that has introduced a telephone system and a second regional company that competes and also sets up a telephone system. You become a customer of one of those companies. I become the customer of the other company. And then one night you realize, hey, I left my notes at work. I need you to grab them and bring them home. Uh, and, uh, you know, can you swing by my place and you try and call me? But you can't because you're on one system and I'm on the other and there's no interconnectivity. Right. And this was partially because, you know, uh, those those lines might literally not have been connected. And even if they were, you're talking to the, the way that telephones worked at the time is is you would you would pick it up and you would get an operator and, and you would you tell go, the operator yeah. where you want your call to go. The operator would manually switch you through, manually look at, at a system of switches and figure out the route to get your call to that house right. or that other phone. Right. Or as long as the line wasn't engaged, they could try the line. Mm-hmm. But if it's not on their system, then you couldn't call them. Right. Uh, so so there there were, speaking of these these numbers of customers, there were some uh, 700,000 customers using these other services and about a million using Bell. Yeah. Yeah. So around that time. So when you think about that, 6,000 companies and 700,000 customers and then one company and a million customers that shows you that Bell the system power that they have they were still they were still effectively a monopoly because right. there was no other single company that could compete with them so while they weren't by the letter of the law a true monopoly as in the only game in town effectively that's what they were and one other thing that happened in 1894 was that uh well the Pacific Telephone and Telegraph Company which later became Pacific Telesis opened the first exchange operated entirely in a language other than English within the United States. It operated in Chinatown in San Francisco, and it was all in Chinese. All the customers spoke Chinese and all the operators spoke Chinese. Huh. Uh, 1899. That's when AT&T acquired its former rival, Western Union. And I'm sure probably some people said, ha ha, when it happened. Uh, so remember, Western Union was the company that had they purchased those patents from Bell, this would be a totally different story. There would not have been an AT&T. But instead, uh, they had decided to fight against Bell and Bell Systems, and now they became a property of AT&T itself. Um, so AT&T acquires the assets of the American Bell Telephone Company, which means that AT&T, the subsidiary, now becomes the, the parent, parent company. Yeah, so AT&T was... Now, the big company. The student has become the teacher. Right. So 1899 is when we can say the company of AT&T really came into being. It was no longer a subsidiary or a division. It was it was in charge. So uh, by this time, the company size was pretty big. You know, keep in mind, when it was founded, there was one employee. Now there were a million three hundred twenty two thousand phones in the system and more than forty five thousand employees. Uh, and that same year, researchers independently developed a theory about something called loading coils. Now, loading coils are a, uh, a, a 
part of technology that was very important in the early days of the telephone system. It actually would reduce the rate at which a traveling telephone signal would weaken, which made it possible to build longer phone lines and build out this long distance network. Right. That that loss of signal is called attenuation. And it right. It's, it's a loss of intensity of a signal as it travels through any medium. Right. Yeah, so this was a huge help in getting around just a practical problem that existed with the technology. So, and several other advancements would be made later on. Yep, and we'll talk a lot about those. Before we do, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, so back to AT&T. In 1904, we start seeing some states begin to pass laws requiring the interconnection between phone networks. And it's still a state by state case basis at this point. So it's not like, um, it's not like this is a national movement yet, but it's starting to kind of develop into that. And remember, AT&T, they're, they were taking a, a pretty ha- no, nasty competitive approach. Nasty might be the wrong word. How about uh, aggressive, enthusiastic? <laughs> Yeah, so, but technically this is what everyone had to do. Everyone was building out their networks and not connecting with other networks. AT&T had the most power here because they had the, the largest number of customers among any single telephone company. So by not playing ball, by not allowing connectivity with these other networks, if you know that AT&T is the big telephone company and that the majority of the people you would want to get in touch with are going to be connected to that company... That's the company you go with. Even if there's a regional company that ends up having a better deal for you financially, if no one you know is on that service, then it doesn't and do any good. And you can't get a call from another service. Then, right. right. So just imagine for you cell phone users out there that if you're an AT&T customer, you would be unable to call anyone using Verizon Sprint or T-Mobile. And the same would be true for each of those companies. No one would be able to call anyone cross-company. Then you see how how this becomes a problem. Right. But this is still in the early days. So uh, we get to 1906, right? Yeah, it was around that time that the head of the Chicago Bell Exchange instituted coin-operated telephones to prevent people from freeloading in in shops. You know, drugstores or something might have a telephone in them. And since it was still relatively expensive to place calls, uh, this was a way they, you know, it, it was a nickel per call. And um, by by 1906, there were nearly 40,000 coin-operated telephones in Chicago. And now you don't see them hardly anywhere yeah, anymore. Yeah, I love seeing them in movies these days. Yeah, cause... once in a while, like maybe at an airport or something, you might see some. But mm-hmm. otherwise, they're you know they used to be everywhere. Heck, I remember where they were everywhere. Oh yeah, yeah, I I remember that too. I'm not that young. Mm, okay, 1907. Um, ah, 1907 was big. That is the year that Theodore Vail um became president of AT and T again. Again, yeah. well, he had technically been president of Bell, I think. Yeah, that's true. Previously. He was, he was so, president of Bell, and now he's first president of time AT&T. president of AT and T. So he he was uh, brought back on when the J P Morgan Group had gained a majority control of AT and T and said, you know, this Vail guy, we like what he has to say. We're going to put him back on the top of the company. Yeah, JP, JP Morgan, especially like, cause he was still alive at the time. Yeah. And he specifically, I'm possibly even called up Vale. I think Vale was in South America at the time doing stuff and, you know, had been retired and he convinced him to come out of retirement. Yep. And Vale, uh, again, started to really lay down the vision of AT&T and started an ad campaign in 1908. And Vail would really be responsible yet again for setting the vision of AT&T. He, he set up a challenge um, to have a line, a single line stretching from New York to San Francisco in the next seven years. 
That's pretty, again, ambitious. It was very ambitious considering the technology at the time. So 1908, he starts uh, to kind of spearhead an ad campaign that set the AT&T corporate policy. Uh, yeah, that this was this was the other really big important part of his vision yeah. and and it was connected to this a single line concept. Yeah, it was one policy, one system, universal service. The idea here being that in order to guarantee that you could that every person in America would have access to telephones, you had to essentially take the stance of we're the only game in town because if there's none of this interconnectivity through different companies, that's the only option you have is you have to have someone come out and become the dominant player so that everyone has access to the phone and can call anyone else. He also, Vail had this very kind of pro-monopoly stance of competition is what turns consumers away from brands. It's yeah. this, this kind of cutthroat thing that happens is is bad publicity for everyone. So if, you know, just... It, it's kind of that Dr. Horrible sort of thing. Like right, the, yeah, world. the world is a terrible place and I just need to rule it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's exactly that kind of approach. In fact, I had read several things about how the, the uh, telegraph companies had entered an era of competition and they all decided they did not like that very much. And so the telephone company was following the same route. They weren't so crazy about competition. And to be fair, this is a case where competition wasn't really helpful to the consumer simply because of that lack of interconnectivity. It wasn't that, you know, it, the problem with it is that without the competition, you don't have the, the benefit of the consumer being able to choose the right kind of plan or price or whatever. But on the downside is, you know, if there's no interconnectivity, then it really gets you stuck. Yeah. And in these early days, that was the bigger issue. So um, 1910, some important, very important thing in the history of the phone industry happens. Well, phones were still new enough that we didn't really have phone etiquette. Yeah. And so Bell would publish a a little Bell Engineer magazine would would sponsor a contest for the best essay about the, the proper telephone etiquette. And they published the best essay. Um, and this was kind of when the war on hello began. Yeah. So hello was being adopted as the salutation of choice by a lot of people. And phone executives and other people thought that this was a vulgar means of, of greeting someone on the phone. I have a quote from that winning essay. It is, would you rush into an officer up to the door of a residence and blurt out, hello, hello, who am I talking to? No, one should open conversations with phrases such as Mr. Wood of Curtis and Sons wishes to talk with Mr. White without any unnecessary and undignified hellos. Huh. Now, I, I remember hearing once upon a time an apocryphal tale that the telephone is what gave rise to the word hello. But in fact, the word hello predates the telephone by a few decades. Uh, I think the earliest written examples date from the 1830s. Uh, however, I will say that the telephone gave rise to the popularity of the word hello. And uh, obviously, you know, any any sensible, civilized human being would use a hoi hoi. Uh, <laughs> There's all kinds of other etiquette notes in these manuals that were coming out at the time. Uh, one from California uh, yes. instructed speakers to speak directly into the mouthpiece, keeping the mustache out of the opening. Yes. And that would come into play again in the late 2000s like the 2010 era, when hipsters would come back and the mustache got out of control again. Come on, guys. Seriously. Look, handlebar mustaches are amazing. It's not I've anyone's fault. I've had one before. Oh. So, so what you're saying is that you had one before it was cool? Uh, 
1913, AT&T becomes a government-sanctioned monopoly as the result of an antitrust lawsuit, he said, ignoring her pointedly. It's documented in something that's called the Kingsbury Commitment. So at that time, AT&T divested itself of controlling interest in Western Union. So, you know, they had acquired it earlier. Now they divested their control of it and also allowed uh, competing telephone services to connect to the AT&T long-distance network. They had to do so with a fee. There was a toll fee every time they would connect to AT&T's line. So that's how AT&T could uh, gain revenue through this this relationship. Uh, right. J.P. Morgan was still a partial owner of AT&T at the time, and he was fighting with the lawmakers known as trust busters who were trying to, uh, trying to break up AT&T right up until he passed away in, in this year in 1913. And Vail did not continue the fight the way that Morgan really wanted to. He he chose to dominate through this kind of terrifically sneakily backhanded cooperation with these smaller independent companies. And yeah, because it meant that he still made money from them. A lot of money. Yeah. I mean, you know, this this worked out really well for everyone except the independents because, right. you know, the, the arrangement helps allow customers of different telephone companies connect with each other mm-hmm. because it mandates that AT&T has to play with everyone's uh, everyone's network. Yeah, so the network interconnectivity is now no longer a problem. But it gave AT&T permission to function like a national utility, and, and it would dominate the telephone market until 1949. Uh, and some would argue well beyond well that. Beyond, well, certainly into the 80s, too, you could argue. And yeah. so, so right, so if, if independent companies wanted to use the widespread Bell system, they had to agree to use Bell's equipment, they had to adhere to their standards, and they had to... Again, pay fees so for the you, use of those wires. If you're thinking that this antitrust story sounds familiar, it'll get increasingly familiar as this series goes on. Yes. One competitor wrote that that this entire ordeal was like trying to fight an octopus, which yeah. I just think is terrifically like I, I, I want that steampunk comic book about that. Moving on into 1914, we see another technological development, the three-element vacuum tube, which was an amplifier that enabled the first transcontinental line to exist, which didn't exist yet. It hadn't been laid down yet, but this technology is what made it possible. Uh, right. This is an important advancement because of that aforementioned attenuation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, unless people could come up with a better material than copper to transmit a signal with or, or a way to amplify amplify the signal, it just wasn't going to work. And Dr. Lee DeForest created this Audion uh, three-element vacuum tube, mm-hmm. and it would be really big in lots of other industries. It enabled the development of radio, radar, television, and computers right up until transistors became right. a thing in the 1960s. Yeah, yeah, you have to go all the way. Remember that the first transistor isn't even uh, invented in the prototype stage until the late 40s. So... From this point until the late 40s, just in the in the lab, not not a, let alone out in the real world, this is this is the best the technology could offer us at the time. Right. Yeah. I think 1960s was a number that was incorrect. Listen to Jonathan. <laughs> well, by the 1960s, it was certainly common. Right. In okay. the 50s, it wasn't common because they still had to <laughs> they still had to refine the design. Certainly. You look Thank at that first a, transistor, it looks terrible. That's very generous. <laughs> um, and, and meanwhile, uh, via AT&T's manufacturing subsidiary that we have previously mentioned, Western Electric Company, international affiliates were starting to sell equipment around Europe, South America, and also in Japan and Australia. Yeah. Yep. We could not call them yet. But no. that would that would change shortly. Right. Uh, Jan- relatively speaking. January 25th, 1915. That's when the first long-distance call is between Alexander Graham Bell in New York 
and Thomas Watson all the way in San Francisco. Oh, Thomas Watson. So this oh, was I'm that, glad to catch up with him. Yeah, this was that promise about getting that that long distance connection all the way from coast to coast in the United States. Uh, it also had two other connections on that one call. Uh, there was the president of the United States who was in Washington, D.C., and uh, Thomas Vail, who at the time was in Jekyll Island, Georgia. Hey, Say, that's, I've been there. I've been there as well. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting. I, I think I've even seen a historic plaque that re- re- referenced this. But then again, I have a feeling that Jekyll Island must be the place where they make those historic plaques because they are everywhere. So the cost for those first three minutes of uh, phone time on a typical long distance call between New York and San Francisco is twenty dollars and seventy cents. In 1915 dollars. Now, in this one, I used the Bureau of Labor Statistics because that was late enough for me to do that. That's based on the consumer price index. So that's the general price of goods and services in one year versus another year. So based on that, $20.70 is about $479. So that's how much it would cost you for three minutes of phone time on a call between New York and San Francisco. Yikes. Wow. Uh, so 1916 was the first year that they started testing phone service to Europe. It would not work for another little bit. Yeah. And so this phone service, you might think, oh, did they lay a really long cable? No, the early phone service that would become the transatlantic phone service was based on radio waves, right. not on a, a physical cable. Uh, 1917, that's the beginning of the U.S. involvement in World War One. Employees start to volunteer for service for in, during World War One, and AT and T develops the first air-to-ground, ground-to-air radio communication systems. And that was also when the U.S. government took control of the nation's telephone services. They yeah. would not give it back to its uh, proprietary owners until 1919. Yeah, it was considered a wartime uh, resource. Mm-hmm. So, getting to 1919, that's when Bell System f- uh, first dial telephones. Uh, they're they are released in Norfolk, Virginia. And so before this, like we said before, you would pick up a phone and you would speak to an operator who would make the physical switching to let you complete your call. The uh, the dialing, of course, is more what we're familiar with today, unless we've all just used the automated settings on our smartphones and don't even remember how to dial anymore. But in general, it's where you type in the series number, or in this case, they were rotary phones. You would dial literally Mm-hmm. Around the dial. Did you ever use a rotary phone? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, just checking. Huh. That was also the year that Vale retired for the second time. He would he would die the following year. Yeah. Uh, so in 1921, the United States government passed the Willis Graham Act, which removed antitrust restrictions to the telephone industry. So it's essentially saying open game. <laughs> For uh, for AT and T and other yeah, companies, AT and T would acquire over two hundred and seven thousand telephones worth of exchanges within the next six years after yeah. this was passed. It was really again to help facilitate that interconnected network of telephone systems. So this is continuing the work that was done back in nineteen thirteen, um, and it was also so that the United States wouldn't be plagued with hundreds of networks that had no interconnectivity. But it also meant that it gave AT&T the ability to really cement itself as a monopoly in the United States. So 1922 was a a big year for multiple reasons, and that's the year we're going to end this first episode on. AT&T launched the WEAF radio station in New York, which was the very first radio station to broadcast a commercial. It's also the very first radio station to broadcast a college football game. Princeton beat University of Chicago. Uh, On August 2nd, 1922... Alexander Graham Bell died. 
And on August 4th, 1922, during Alexander Graham Bell's funeral, all telephone service was suspended for a full minute in memory of Bell. Wow. So you know you're important when an entire country's communication system shuts, shuts down. down in your honor. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. Yeah, so that's uh, pretty powerful stuff. Um, all right, well, that wraps up our first part on AT&T. Now, we only got to 1922, so you see why we had to divide it up. But when we come back for the next episode, we'll talk more about how AT&T began to consolidate its power and some efforts on the part of the U.S. government to maybe uh, shake things up a little bit, a couple of times. As much as they could. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get into that next time. So if you have any suggestions for topics you would like to hear more about, Send us a message. Our email address is techstuff at discovery.com or drop us a line on our social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr with the handle techstuffhsw. And Lauren and I will talk to you again really soon, but not on the phone. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 